Hey everyone, it's Greg here. Welcome to another episode of the Intentional Wisdom Podcast. My guest today is Jesse Puji. Jesse is a seriously impressive guy. He's a graduate of Wharton, an alum of some great companies like Goldman Sachs and McKinsey. But perhaps most impressively, he is an incredibly successful entrepreneur. He built and successfully exited a multi-million dollar business in the digital marketing world. He started and runs a venture studio called Gateway X, from which he has already launched three successful businesses. And by the way, in his spare time, he has built a massive following on Twitter, where he regularly shares insights on entrepreneurship. I absolutely love this conversation. Jesse and I went deep on topics like coaching, motivation, and how to operate in your quote unquote zone of genius. I think you're going to find a ton of practical takeaways from this one. Before we get going, just a quick reminder to subscribe to the Intentional Wisdom newsletter at gregcampion.substack.com. If you miss an episode of this podcast, don't worry, the newsletter has you covered with highlights from each conversation, plus so much more, including my personal content diet. Who doesn't want to know what Greg Campion is listening to and watching? Come on, guys. It's one email every two weeks, gregcampion.substack.com. Check it out. Finally, if you're liking this podcast, please, please, please tell your friends, leave a review, share it on social media, whatever you can do to help spread the word is much appreciated. All right, enough intro from me. Here's my conversation with Jesse Puji. All right, Jesse Puji, welcome to the Intentional Wisdom Podcast. I'm excited to be here, Greg. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm fired up to have you here. Um, I have been kind of following you for some time now. I was trying to think about uh, when I first came across your work, and I think I first came across you a couple of years ago on Twitter. This was before you were the uh, current worldwide sensation that you are today on Twitter. <laughs> but uh, but uh, a couple, of, I think I came across you a couple of years on Twitter. I thought what you were posting was really thoughtful, some like really interesting frameworks around entrepreneurship and some really you know thoughtful ideas. Um, and then I heard you on, uh, I think it was a Founders Field Guide uh, podcast with uh, Patrick O'Shaughnessy, where uh-huh. you were talking about performance marketing. And that's when I started to realize, oh my gosh, like the, the kind of depth of some of the entrepreneurial kind of ventures that you are into. And I was just, just came away so, so impressed. And then, you know, continued to follow you over the last couple of years. And it's been a really fun ride. So very excited to, um, to, to, to speak with you now for our listeners who maybe have not been following along on your journey for the last couple of years. I'd love uh, if you wouldn't mind to kind of rewind the clock a little bit and, you know, maybe t- back to the start of your career, uh, it'd be great sure. to do maybe like a whirlwind tour of your career and the types of ventures you've been involved with uh, before we get into all the stuff around systems that I love to talk about. Yeah, yeah. Happy to. Uh, so so my quick story, uh, I was born and raised in St. Louis. Uh, my dad came over from India when he was 17 and, uh, you know, immigrant got his foot in the door somehow in Missouri of all places. I don't know how. And, hmm. you know, he was always a small business entrepreneur since I was born. So he's, I think he was 24. He had two kids. He was an entrepreneur. Um, and, and it was, you know, he had a real estate business, a travel business. So I kind of grew up, you know, with that in my DNA and I think very much took to it. I was the kid yeah. who was selling popcorn tins door to door. You know, I, we had a snow shoveling business, my brother and I, that was our big thing. We had a, one funny story there as we, uh, you know, we was, we started shoveling some of the driveways in our neighborhood, and then we realized 
you know, you could go to a neighborhood with smaller driveways, they'd pay you the same. So we'd have our mom, after it would snow, we'd have our mom drop us off in those neighborhoods so that we'd make more money. Most um, kids are getting dropped off at like the best neighborhoods to go get Halloween candy. That This is how we knew you were an entrepreneur like early on, apparently. Yeah, we did that too. I actually got in trouble when I was was in middle school because we went to the neighborhood, got all this candy. I waited three months and then I went and sold my candy to people at school and like the school's like you can't all right so entrepreneurship and uh making money is in your blood apparently yeah yeah we in high school we had a djing business that we we cornered the the indian music market in st louis you know back then there was no spotify so there was you had to get these cds from toronto or new york for all the latest indian music and for anyone who wanted a wedding or in the kind of 300 mile radius of st louis we became the go-to djs and actually made a lot of money doing that as teenagers um, you know, I, I had a, an English teacher of all things saw my sophomore year who, who said, Hey, what do you, know, you seem pretty bright. What do you want to do with your life? And I said, I don't know. business entrepreneurship. You know, mm-hmm. she goes, where do you want to go to college? I said, Oh, university of Michigan. You know, it's a, I heard it's good business school. It's in the Midwest. She, and she just looks at me dead in the eye and she goes, Wharton. No, you want to go to Wharton young man. And I was like, Oh, I had no oh, idea. Really? What it was. My parents didn't know what it was, but she kind of put my, set my sights on this, you know, this top business school in America. And yeah. Worked my butt off. How to get in? Ended up getting in. Uh, freshman year, I met uh, you know my two roommates. We had met at a pre-college program. Uh, one's Chris Amos. The other is Nick Shaw. And for those who listening, you know Chris Amos, Puji Shaw. The first two letters of the of our last names would spell the word ampush. Oh. And we were freshmen, okay. and we saw that, and we said, "Oh, that's a cool name. Let's buy the domain." And huh. one day we're going to start a business with this. And so during college, we also did a bunch of random ventures. We had a t-shirt company. We, we were always doing something. Yeah, um, yeah. And, you know, it, it, anyone who knows anything about Wharton or Penn, it's very much a, you go, hey, you got to go work at these top firms. They're, yeah. you know, Wall Street, that's the way to go. And, and you know, we were very, I was very intrigued by it. I said, you know, people say these are amazing companies. Let's go work at them. So I ended up, yep. I also describe it as a detour, frankly, in my career. But I ended up going, okay, let me go direct consulting for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. I ended up working in the finance uh, on the buy side for a couple of years. I actually joined Goldman Sachs three months before Lehman filed for bankruptcy. Oh, uh, and okay. Do you know, so do you know like, I was at Lehman then? No, no way. I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's I spent crazy. the first uh, eight years of my career at Lehman. It was, it was there when the ship went down. It was, uh, I have quite a few wars. Yeah, I was an associate. I was pretty young, and, and you yeah. know, I had hit the desk maybe a month prior because there was some training. And, and I, you know, it's a hedge fund. It's supposed to kind of produce you know, very cor- you know, uncorrelated returns every, every day or whatever. Yep. And the, so you were the, on the buy side, so like Goldman Sachs Asset Management, is that what that investment was? Investment Partners, yeah. It was like okay, one of these yeah, seven yeah, billion yeah. dollar multi-strat funds. Okay. Uh, okay. But the but the you know the first month I was on the desk, the there was one week where the fund lost 150 million dollars every day. Wow. And I like turned to my VP and I'm like, is this normal? And he's like, yeah. No, this is the worst week we've ever had ever. This is not <laughs> sustainable, it seems. <laughs> Um, so anyway, so, you know, that was a time it was around 2010. I said, uh, you know, this was fun. I, I enjoyed it. I'd always had a bar for myself where I said, I have to love these jobs and I have to be in the top 5%. Okay. And I think, I don't think either of those were true for, for either consulting or, or investing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I said, okay, so I'm going to go roll the dice. I'm going to, let's go, let's go build a business. Worst case scenario, we're going to, we're going to go to business school in a few years. Mm-hmm. That was sort of, and you know, we, we really did de-risk our careers in some sense to go take a big jump. And we moved out to San Francisco kind of on a dime and said, well, we're in the belly of the beast. We want to build something. And and we started looking around, talking to friends and mentors. They said, hey, you're good with numbers, data analytics. Like, go look at digital marketing. You'll, you'll mm-hmm. learn something. And, you know, some people described it or we started describing it as the spinal cord of the Internet. 
because you know if you're if you're TikTok or Facebook or Google, you make all your money from it. Mm-hmm. And if you're Netflix or a random D2C brand or whatever, you get all your customers from it. And so there's this idea of like, well, if we could learn the spinal cord, we'll understand the internet really well. So let's mm-hmm. start to learn digital marketing and online advertising and, and kind of start to enjoy it. And, and a long story short, which I can go into more if you want to, is that was right around the time Facebook was launching their self-serve ad platform. So we were these young folks, 25, like, oh, let's try these Facebook ads. And we had a couple of clients that are paying us on a performance basis. Mm-hmm. And what was a 5% margin on Google for us was an 80% margin on Facebook. Oh, wow. And so we said, oh my God, like, let's mm. go scale more of these. And I remember making some of the first ads myself. They worked really, really well. And we said, how do we, let's scale, scale, scale. And maybe 18 months into starting Ampush, uh, you know, we were already doing in the millions in EBITDA. It was wow. like six, seven people, but it was this very profitable business. And we got a call from and Facebook. And this was your same crew from college? Like it was Ampush, yeah. It was Chris Amos, yeah. Jesse Puji, Nick Shaw. That's um, awesome. Who are all dear friends still. I mean, very close friends. And, and you know, we... Uh, we got a call from Facebook about 18 months into the business and, and they say, who the hell are you guys? You're one of our top 100 global advertisers. Wow. Your name is like next to, you know, PNG. Who the, you know, what, what is this? Come meet us. <laughs> so we went to meet them and we, you know, we, they were, they were probably expecting affiliate marketers and in walk these former wall street guys. We had decks and slides around the product and how they should automate it and make bidding easier. And, and they said, Oh, this is great guys. You know, we're looking for third-party partners to give access to our API to kind of build around our ecosystem. Would you be interested? And we said, yeah, let's go do that. And mm-hmm. so we sort of pivoted the business a little bit. Um, and, and you know, around that time, they were all Series A companies, but we started getting, we, there was like three, five, three or four companies who could do Facebook ads well. This is 2011, 2012. Okay. Okay. Before mobile, before newsfeed. I mean, this is really early. And if you looked at our vintage of clients from 2011, 2012, the names on there, there's a bunch of names that none of us would recognize because the companies didn't work out. But there's a bunch of names like Uber, Dollar Shave Club, Peloton, Blue Apron. So these were all of our early clients. Mm-hmm. And so we were just you know, riding the wave of Facebook, riding the wave of their growth, of our growth. And the company scaled to several hundred million in ad spend. Um, in 2015, we sold a minority interest, kind of had a partial exit to Red Ventures. Uh, and they really taught us how to take the business from like a fast growing break even business to what I'd say a, a moderately or still growing, but like very profitable business. Mm, mm-hmm. So I continued to run that through about 2019. Um, and, and, and by the way, talk- by the way, I don't, uh, so red ventures, like, I don't know if a lot of people know them, uh, New York times did an article about them recently and it was like something like the, the biggest, the biggest tech company, company you've never heard of, of, or biggest media company you've never heard of or something like that. Uh, believe it or not, I'm sp- currently sitting about 2.8 miles from Red Ventures headquarters. Oh, nice. So they are right down the road from me. Um, and I've got a lot of friends who, uh, who, who work there. It's a really impressive, uh, company. It's, in it's, fact, yeah. I mean, Rick, Rick is one of the most amazing and under the radar leaders, uh, on the planet, I think yeah, actually. Yeah. And, and I think in 10 or 20 years, people are going to talk about, you know, I wasn't around in the seventies or eighties, but. I assume Berkshire Hathaway was sort of a secret for a little while. And then eventually, oh my God, Berkshire Hathaway, it's this thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, I believe the same thing will happen with Red Ventures. Oh, I think interesting. Books, books will yeah. be written in the next 10 or 20 years. And I think it's wow. going to be one of those kind of That's things. That's quite a call. Yeah, Rick, Rick Elias is, is the leader. Um, yeah, he, uh, he was also a front row passenger in Captain Sully's plane that landed. Yeah, he has in, a great like, TED Hudson. talk about it. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, it's, I recommend everybody watch that TED talk because it's you know he basically thought he was going to die and he had five minutes to think about it, and he came away and and you know I, I know him super well he's a mentor of mine yeah yeah I also know a lot of his executives who've worked with him for a really long time and mm-hmm. and 
many of them were with him before that incident and after that incident. And, and all of them say, you know, it's not just a, it's head talk. Mm. He really changed the way he wow. lived. He changed the way he showed up every day. Um, and so anyway, yeah, it's, they're, they're great. So, you know, they taught us a ton and, you know, it, it, during that time, you know, I know we want to talk a little bit today about like the coaching and fear and some of these things, but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. really that period for me was, was a, was a really important introspection period. Um, which I can go into more detail, uh, you know, starting in 2017 and then forward. But one of the things that came out of that was I realized, you know, I want to wake up every day and do something that I love. And I realized I love entrepreneurship mm-hmm. and I love helping other people learn and grow. And I wanted to build a business that would let me do those two things every day, uh, permanently forever. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I just, it, it wasn't going to be possible inside of the, the construct of Ampush I ended up, you know, transitioning out of the day-to-day CEO role, moved back to St. Louis. Actually, I was in the Bay for 10 years and to, kind of took 2020 off. It was a weird year, as everybody remembers. And then in January 21, started Gateway X. And Gateway X is, a, is like kind of my spin on a venture studio. Uh, the idea is let's build businesses where we think there's obviously an unserved need, a product that we can, you know, deliver to a market, of course, like any business. But we, you know, if it's a B2C business, it has to leverage customer acquisition pretty heavily. It has to leverage any business we start it has to leverage one of my unfair advantages. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if it's, it's a consumer business, does it have a big angle in customer acquisition, Facebook ads, that has to be a part of it. And we have to believe we can be better than other people. And if it's a B2B business, it sells things to brands and marketers, which are obviously the, the people I know really well. I know their problems. I know how to reach them and get in front of them. And so we've launched three businesses in the last year. And change at the same time. I've started doing the Twitter stuff, podcasting, kind of mm-hmm. just generally mm-hmm. getting my words out there. It, you know, some of it's purpose driven, and some of it's there. There's, you know, I'm realizing that it's a it's a huge unfair advantage to build over time and cultivate. Yeah, um, yeah. So that's me. And then I have I have a seven year old and a five year old, uh, boy and girl, Ricky and Serena, and uh, yeah, I'm married here in St. Louis. Awesome, awesome. We've got kids around the same age. Uh, I've got a ten-year-old and an eight-year-old boy and a girl, and uh, and uh, and, a, and a little two-year-old running around as well, who's keeping us busy. So, um, well, that thank you for that background. And then maybe just maybe just to finish up on that. So you've recently started a couple of businesses, haven't you? So can you just tell us a, l- a little bit about about that? Yeah, yeah. So th- so we launched three businesses out of Gateway X uh, since January of last year. Um, three and a half, really, depending on how you look at it. One of them is a SaaS business for like e-commerce enablement. And the vision there, you know, the view there is like e-commerce websites haven't changed in 10 years. They look and feel like, you know, they belong on a desktop, not on a mobile uh, yeah, platform. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and the big vision is like, we're going to have a bunch of mobile features and functionality that are going to make mobile sites more engaging and easy, easy to use. And, and you just think about how little like tapping, swiping, all these things that are normal in other parts yep, of your phone, yep. you don't do on an e-commerce website. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so the, you want to take like, you want to essentially take like, um, a website that you're going to go shop to buy something on and turn it into more of like a TikTok or Instagram TikTok type, or Instagram experience type experience. People, or even yeah, like a, yeah. you know, Tinder, like swiping, like we have a bunch of product ideas and features. The first one we shipped, um, which I'll just show you, even though people can't see it is you know essentially the stories experience from instagram but brought on to like an e-commerce uh, okay. experience okay i think i've seen you share something like this on twitter <laughs> yeah so before, it's, it's so. got the you know it's got those little circles at the top you tap on them and next thing you know you're looking at products on a website and you can swipe yeah. through them quickly and tap through them and then we've seen it you know pretty dramatically improve average order value for for multi-fashion sites 
Uh, so that one's called Kahani, kahaniapp.com. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And then we launched a consumer brand, which is, is a bigger story, but I was like really eager. I, I, at first, people were like, you should go buy a bunch of brands, Jesse, and, and do, do your customer acquisition stuff. And I, yeah. I, I, I talked with 30 brands in mm-hmm. January of last year, and I just didn't feel excited about it. And we mm-hmm. talk about energy later. Like I didn't have the energy. I wasn't. And instead, I like I just started like I want to build one. I want to like get a Shopify site up, and I want to. And so I started building the site. Randomly picked like digestive stuff, which I get. You know, there's a whole backstory, but we've evolved it and iterated and completely changed the brand and the product and the problem it's solving. But what we found was we started meeting a lot of doctors, and one doctor came to us uh, who we met, and she said, you know one third of women suffer from bloating. It's a huge issue. Nobody's addressed it. And we said, oh, really? And we started like doing some research and we found that the term bloating is searched more often than the term erectile dysfunction. Huh. And we go, that's crazy because there's all these like hymns and all these, you know, really, uh-huh, like how come no one uh-huh. solved this? And we went back to her and said, well, explain it to us. And, and it, it's actually really, like, it turns out there's a lot of, it's a sim, it's a common feeling. It's a really uncomfortable feeling. Women in particular don't like it because it affects physical appearance a lot. Okay. But there, there's a variety of different reasons that it, it could be caused by. Um, and it could be because you're not digesting food properly. It could be because you're not going being regular. Like there's a bunch of reasons. And so, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. it was kind of an interesting category. We, we, we did the classic sort of painted door test. We made five fake brands. One was called Rhythm. One was called Lightness. One was called uh, Superbiotic. And we, we basically put together a product that's not available anywhere else in terms of combining yep. Yep. all the reasons that could possibly be there. Yep. And then we tried the term Unbloat. And Unbloat outperformed everything by like 60%. Wow. And so we launched this brand, unbloat.me. Uh, it's a single supplement, you know, ends bloating. It's uh, We launched it in January. Uh, and we're close to 1,000 subs already. And, and we're, we're at unit economic profitability. So we're at this really interesting juncture now where it's much more about scaling. That's uh, awesome. And it, it's been That's fun awesome. to boots, kind of bootstrap that one because <clears throat> there's a lot of these financing companies out there, as you know, like, once you're in unit economic profitable, they'll essentially fund the working capital piece of it. So you don't really need, you know, cash. You, mm. you do, mm. but you don't need a ton. I, um, it's cool and, to me how you almost like came across it. So you're, you're someone who I, my sense is like has a really good sense of data and has your, has your arms around like how to gather data and customer insights. And it's really interesting to me, like how you almost came upon the problem itself and then how to position it but by leveraging some of those skills that you have. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, the, as you know, like you start something, you never know where it's going to end up. And so there is a science and there's also an art to following a certain amount of intuition as well as data to, to eventually end up somewhere. Um, so anyway, the, the, the third business is one that was on my list for a really long time. And, uh, it actually has its origins in my first job. So my first job was in consulting and, you know, I was sitting there making slides one day and my manager looks across and he goes, hey, you don't need to be doing that. You can just write them on a page and send them to India overnight and you'll wake up the next morning and the slides will be done for you. And I, I did it. Like magic. I was like, <laughs> I was like, I was 22 or 23 and I was like, oh, this is amazing. And so when we started Ampush, one of the first things I did was I said, we're going to build an offshore team yeah. that's going to handle a lot of the manual work associated with running ads and that team is now 50 plus people. And, and, you know, we'd have all these alums, like we'd have people who'd work at Ampush for a few years, then leave to go do growth at a brand. And they would call me and go, man, I need that team. You know, like they, they I, like now that I'm running marketing myself, gosh, there's mm-hmm. so much mm-hmm. work I'm doing. Right. And I said, well, yeah, isn't there, there's nobody who you can offshore that to. They go, that doesn't exist. And I was pretty shocked by it. And, and so I go, this, why doesn't this exist? There should be offshore resources who can support in-house brand, you know, brand teams with marketing and design and whatever other kind of tasks come up. 
Um, and so we started this business called Growth Assistant. And, you know, I, <clears throat> originally I started, I didn't think it would be that big of a, I was like, oh, this is a cool idea. You know, I'll get some customers. It'll be fine. And it's, it's grown. I mean, we have over, it started last February, Greg, and we have over 200 people in the Philippines already and over a hundred customers. Wow. That's incredible. A hundred customers and already? And it started last February? Wow. In, in like 18, less than 18 months. And it's blown my mind because I think what I didn't realize was just how big this market, I mean, we talk about thousands of Shopify shops and, and I think now I, now I view growth marketing as the next computer science. You know, 20 years ago, there was software and computer science. Everyone said, you need a software engineer. Coding's really hard. You have to figure it out. And there were nobody who knew how to do it. You know, so all these offshoring companies started. I think growth marketing is the same. You know, it's not quite as technical, but it's the same thing. Hey, it's really important. Everyone needs to understand it. Very few people actually know how to do it. Mm. And there's this huge demand for it. And so it's one of the themes. Like I'm, I'm starting to see kind of start a business is bottom up, but now top down, I'm starting to identify some themes that I think are really interesting for kind of our, our, our 10 year trajectory. That's awesome. That's awesome. Wow. So thank you for the overview of those. I mean, it's, it's awesome how you've got your kind of hands in multiple different businesses. It reminds me a little bit. So I just, uh, interviewed Michael Girdley recently, but it, it reminds me a little bit about like his background in that he is, yeah. um, he launched a venture studio too. And he's got, I think seven or eight or nine different companies that he is not, uh, not serving like a, a role in the business, but he's kind of uh, outside kind of advising the business and sitting on boards and, and um, you know, still making um, quite a few uh, decisions. But um, but that's that's amazing. So anyways, I think honestly, I think any one of those businesses is like a full worth a full podcast episode. And I think you've talked about some of these in some other places. So what I'll do uh, for our listeners is I'll link to some of those other um, podcasts if people want to dive more into any of those, because sure, like I said, I think each one is like really interesting um, on its own. But um, so, but on this podcast, of course, we want to talk about, uh, you know, some of the stuff or some of the kind of habits and routines that are giving you the energy or the time or setting the foundation for you to be able to do all this stuff. Right. So like, I think a lot of people listening might be like, Holy cow, how is this guy involved in so much different stuff and still able to like be a dad and still able to, you know, just manage his life. Right. So, um, I want to get into some of those specific tactics that you that you use, but be, be, maybe before we go into that, I wouldn't mind just starting high level. Um, my sense is that you're someone who's who's really thoughtful and intentional about what you do, um, the actions that you take, and I think I'm guessing that has to kind of start somewhere. So um, this may be a little bit of a lofty question, but I want to ask you like how you think about purpose and and motivation. Kind of what's, how do you think about that overall driving force behind everything that you do every day? Yeah, sure. You know, that, that itself has been, and is continues to be an evolution of, of many types for me. You know, I, I started Ampush when I was 25 and didn't know anything. Right. And, and at first it was like, oh, this is fun. This is cool. Our dream. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe two years into Ampush, somebody made us kind of an unsolicited offer to buy the business for, I would say $20 million, something like that. And we were 27. Like, Holy shit, that's a lot that's of money. Amazing. Like, yeah, wow, yeah. right? Um, we'd cracked the code on Facebook. We were very profitable, yeah. right? It was, it was. By the way, by the way, I'm pretty sure it was you who got me to buy a Peloton bike because, like, I, I was like a very early adopter of Peloton, yes, and I'm I, sure I 100% bought it due to the Facebook ads that were being served to me back in like 2016. 
Well, some of our biggest clients at Ampush, funny enough, like Peloton's a great example. We almost didn't take them on because we were like, who's going to buy a $2,000 bike on Facebook? Yeah, yeah. Like, it seems crazy. It's um, I, Apparently, I was the t- target audience because I'd never done a spinning class in my life. But like the ads were so good. I was like, um, I'm going all in. And it's actually been a terrific investment. And six years yeah. later, I use it like almost like I use it multiple times a week. Still the same bike. There you so. go. So, so, you know, we sort of looked at each other and go, wow, that's a lot. Like, well, we can make you know, a lot of money doing this. And, mm. um, I, cause I don't think initially we were motivated as much by money so much as like, let's go do this thing. Let's go prove to ourselves we can do this, you know? Yeah. yeah. And then from 2012 to 2015 on the advice of friends and whatever, we just sort of said, no, grow at all costs. You know, we were bootstrapped. So it was hyper growth without a balance sheet, which I don't ever recommend to anybody. And mm. we, we, we just wore ourselves so thin, you know, and the company went from, uh, you know, a few million in revenue or, you know, whatever single digits to like well into the eight figures during that. It was like a, it was probably four or five wow. X during three years. Wow. And, and we were dead, you know, we were tired mm-hmm. and, and we said, great, we're going to just go sell it. And, and everyone told us, you know, when we started this strategy, the ad tech world was really, it had really good multiples. By the time we took it out to market, that had, that had, wasn't the case anymore. Mm. And, you know, we, so we thought we were going to, someone's going to write us a fat nine figure check. And there were still very nice eight figure, high eight figure offers, but we were really like emotionally screwed up and we were like very disappointed. And I, we didn't even know it was disappointment, by the way. We just thought it was, no, that's not a fair deal. You know, mm. we just got, no, mm-hmm. no, we, th- we think we can sell for more. Like, let's, you know, and so we did this interesting, like, if I could have gone back, I would have told myself to feel my feelings, which I didn't know how to do at that time and actually acknowledge things. And I didn't do any of that. Instead, I was like, okay, let's cut a weird, de-. you know, we cut this deal with Red Ventures um, where they they bought, you know, they bought a minority interest in the company. There was a future potential for them to buy the business at a bigger valuation. Like there was all these complicated things that mm-hmm, are not super mm-hmm. important. Mm-hmm. And we said, great, we did that deal. Um, and it sort of let us sort of not fully face the reality of that moment, I think. And, and so, you know, my, my daughter was born, I don't know, a year and a half after that. And I remember after my daughter was born, you know, I had had a period of three to four months where I, I like didn't want to go to work anymore. And I, I wasn't depressed or anything, but I just wasn't excited. I didn't feel motivated. This is, you know, maybe a year and a half after that deal. I'd made a lot of money obviously. So that was nice, but like mm-hmm. didn't quite feel like the way I expected it to feel. Hmm. Um, and I remember, you know, kind of, just talking to friends, you know, talking to, I talked to Rick about it. I talked, and then, you know, he and a lot of people were like, you know, I think it's time for you to do some inner work, Jesse, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. cause you have two beautiful children, mm-hmm. you're young, you're successful, you're in charge of your, like, you know, every, you, you're a lucky guy, right? Yeah. Uh, but you're not seeing that. So there's probably something you're missing in this and it's worth doing some inner work. And so, I've, you know, we talked to a bunch of coaches. I ended up working, partnering with a coach who I still work with today and, and really changed my life and, and changed my family's life and my business career. And, and, you know, you were asking about motivation, you know, maybe three months into six months into working with him, he was just like, you know, I I hate to break it to you, but you use fear to motivate yourself all the time. That's the only thing you use. It seems. Yeah. That, that, okay. That, that really resonates with me because I think probably more of us than would be comfortable saying use fear as a motivator, right? Um, so tell me more about that. I mean, I'm, I'm very interested in hearing about like 
how you found a coach and like, if you have any recommendations on that, because like per, I've never personally worked with a, a coach and I don't know if you would consider this like a career coach or a life coach or, or what you would consider there, but it would be very interesting. I think for folks to hear about like your your journey there in terms of finding someone in terms of like what you think is important to look for in a coach, but then also more about this kind of concept of living by fear. So yeah, I I can explain all of it. You know, in terms of finding a coach, we did the way you do it for any other thing. You know, we, we talked to people said, Hey, do you know, coach, we're looking for a coach. And we ended up kind of running a process and meeting five or six coaches. And I think now when you, know, you we say had, we, who is that? Me and, and Nick, um, you know, after the, after that Red Ventures deal, Chris sort of, uh, decided to move on. Yeah. Um, and, and then me and Nick were kind of running the business together at that point in 2017. Okay. And, and so, and so we, were you looking at it from the perspective of like the two of you were saying we need like perf- a, someone to coach us like professionally in our careers? Is that how you were well, thinking about I, it? Or? Yeah, I don't, I think, I think a lot of smart people, including Rick said, dude, go get a coach, like go get a, yeah. go get a founder coach, you know, mm-hmm, like whatever mm-hmm. CEO coach, go find a CEO coach. I don't okay. know. I don't think we had had that nuance that you're describing at that point. We okay. Just said a okay. Person yeah, who yeah. Does this. As we met these people, you know, we started to kind of realize there was a little bit of difference between them. Right. And I, now I tell people there's like a two by two in my head, you know, and one access one inside, one side of it is, uh, you know, have they been a founder? And did they understand this? And have they actually lived this life? And on the other end, it was like their professional coach. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and, and, you know, that was our, our version of it. And then on the other okay. side, there was like, are they a spiritual life coach or are they like a business consultant? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and we sort of wanted someone who was high on the, on the one side. We wanted someone who had really lived our, in our shoes and understood mm-hmm. us. And then probably someone in the middle between business, co- you know, business okay. coach and life coach. We didn't. So it's, you know, on one end of the spectrum is someone who's a, who's never been a founder, who's just like the, you're saying there's like a life coach, essentially. Mm-hmm. On the other way of the spectrum is like business consultant, former entrepreneur, almost like a board member. We didn't want that either. So we sort of wanted, that's how we thought about it. Well, well we, I, I think like that could probably, I like the way you think about that. I think that could probably be more broadly applicable too. like if somebody is not necessarily a founder, but let's say they're a, <clears throat> let's say they're in the medical profession. Maybe they would want somebody who's had that type of it. So it's more like looking for somebody who's had like your specific experience of like yeah. where you're going or where you want to go. And then, uh, figuring out where on that spectrum of like spiritual versus like just business. Yeah. And, and, and then there's just chemistry too. It's like, do you get along? Do you trust? And, and we met Dave, Dave Cashin is our coach. Um, and you know he was he went to he went to Penn he went to Wharton he worked mm-hmm. in finance he started a company you know like he he just very much knew the journey we were on. Yeah. Now and is then, he like older than you? Are you look? Does he's that matter? A little older. That didn't matter. matter. I didn't. Yeah. Uh, that didn't matter. I mean, they, I think they all. We were very young, right? We were thirty-one yeah. when we did. So like, every single coach we met was older. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He might he might have been the youngest of the old of the elders, but um, but yeah. Anyway, so so. We sort of met a bunch of them and then we said, great, let's, let's start working with Dave. And, and, you know, he, he uses this paradigm that I'm a big fan of now, obviously called from the conscious leadership group, uh, their website's conscious.is and they they've written this okay. famous book called the 15 commitments of conscious leaders. Mm. Uh, and they really present this, this paradigm for motivation, right? they say, look, humans generally speaking are motivated by five things. Uh, none are good or bad. There's no good or bad in any of these. They're all just, they have various trade-offs and, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, fear, it's, it's the most common, it's the most powerful, you know, if I put a gun to your head, you'll run faster than you've ever had. 
The trade-offs are that it tends to leave a negative residue on you and others. So it tends to like lead to burnout and negativity. And then the other trade-off is that it's not sustainable. Like if I put a gun to your head, you're going to run really fast. But eventually if, if, if you're, if you've outchased me, you're not going to run anymore and you're not going to feel mm -hmm. the need to run. And they kind of go up the spectrum. There's like extrinsic, which is like money titles, intrinsic, which is kind of beating your own score, player genius, which is like, oh, this is just fun and I'm having, I'm enjoying it. And it's, you know, that's more motivating. And then there's like, you know, em empathic, I don't know if that's the right word, but empathic love. Like it's actually love for the human experience. So it's not like how you love your kids, but it's, I always think of it as like how a restaurateur, they, they may enjoy cooking, which is the genius, but they really love how people break bread around. They love how human, the human experience is enhanced mm -hmm. via good food. Mm -hmm. So it's like, how are you enhancing the human experience in a meaningful way? And, mm -hmm. and if you kind of go through the spectrum of them, you know, as you go up that spectrum, I just described the, the, the theory that they put forward is, is like they become, they're also all powerful, but they become more sustainable and self and sort of self reinforcing. Right. So when you and, you know, you can every time you help the human experience, you want to help it more. It's not like it depletes itself in any way mm -hmm. or like mm -hmm. yeah, I always think of of some examples. They I've heard people talk about maybe Dave talked about them was like, you know, entrepreneurs tend to be addicted to fear, by the way. It's like what helps entrepreneurs that, that chip on our, you know, on our shoulder, like Travis mm -hmm. Kalanick's a famous example. Theoretically, I don't know him. I don't know. This is just mm -hmm. theory. Mm -hmm. Right. And. He's uber uh, big chip, you know, we got to prove ourselves. We're the scrappy underdog. Next thing you know, they're, they're the biggest private company on the planet. Right, right. And what I think someone who believes this would say is, and I was like, hey, he sort of self-sabotaged. He needed to feel fear again. He wasn't scared anymore. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so he actually did a bunch of destructive things to himself to, <laughs> to, to, to go in and feel fear. And, and, he, and entrepreneurs self-sabotage all the time. So, it's, think, so, so the fear is not necessarily always a bad thing, but to your point, it's, it's, there's, there's more sustainable ways to motivate yourself. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And, and a couple other examples I think are just helpful. Like, you know, they say Bill Gates was this, like Microsoft was this fear, you know, a guy became the richest man in the world. And then he was like, he left and mm -hmm. he went to go help the human experience because the, mm -hmm. you know, he had sort of, the fear was gone and, right. and uh, he, 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 it didn't, he doesn't continue to be motivated by the problems at Microsoft and versus like, look at Warren Buffett, his best friend. I mean, we, it's a, it's a very obvious Warren Buffett is loves, lives his life in play genius. He just loves what he does. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And he's freaking 91 and he's still mm -hmm. doing it. Right. Yep. And so, so I think that's kind of the paradigm, and and I think what's interesting about the paradigm is is you know he's like you guys are much more fear motivated than you think, and and there's all these things that started he started to show us and mirror to us. He said, mm. do you know how often I hear you guys use the word should, or must, or have to? He goes, don't those aren't those words least laced in fear? Should should is like, mm. and it's something my wife and I have actually eliminated from our our vocabulary with each other. We shouldn't, you know, oh we should go to this party this weekend. I didn't even realize how much I used it. And then, and we've replaced it. My wife and I at least have replaced it with, I'd like to, yeah, yeah. I'd like to do this. I'd like mm -hmm. to do that. And it's mm -hmm. even to, as the listener, but with the sayer, it sounds more excited. I'd like to go to this party and to the listener, it doesn't sound, it doesn't feel like immediate guilt. It doesn't feel like mm -hmm. an immediate heavy, Oh, we should go to this party. Oh yeah. I don't, I don't. And then by the way, it's like, there's this whole thing about arguable language. It starts, no, we shouldn't. We don't need to go to there mm. versus I'd like to. How do you argue with I'd like to? No, you, you would <laughs> like to. What do you mean? You know, there's a very different discussion if someone says yeah. I'd like to. Yeah. So he started pointing out these things of, man, you guys have used fear. You used fear you wouldn't be successful, then fear of like a certain valuation. And mm. you, you've, you've kept pumping yourself with this fear. And it's addicting because it's effective. It works. But it's made your life not that fun. You haven't enjoyed mm. things. And, and you mm -hmm. sort of... Mm -hmm. 
maybe one reason Jesse you don't want to come to work is is like it's not because at the time I was like oh Facebook ads and marketing these are such stupid fields why did I do this mm. I should have done something more interesting like healthcare like I was really in a and he goes I don't think you know that's that's all content that's not important I think you didn't think you'd be successful you got really successful and you just don't know what to, like you're, you're sort of lost now mm-hmm. you don't you know mm-hmm. and, and you've and so part of what he does, the big CLG and Dave in particular, is not just in general those motivators, because we all draw on all of them all the time, but it's the whole conscious aspect of it is to know when you're feeling which one and using which one, Okay. and then choose it. Mm. So it's like, we tend to revert to fear just naturally. That's a very human response, right? We're, we're wired that way. Oh, something's wrong. Okay. Oh, I feel fear. I got yeah. to go do yeah. all this stuff. That tends to be the way that we respond. So the idea is like, hold on, stop. Take a breath. Do I, you know, do I want to, how do I want to show up here? Mm-hmm. Do I want to show up from it's fear? It's kind of almost do like a sh- mindfulness. I can see where the consciousness uh, comes from. It's almost kind of like a mindful approach and sort of like separating exactly. yourself, like an arm's length separation from the emotion or the feeling and like to recognize it. And then maybe that gives you some power to deal with it in a way that you want to deal with it. Yeah. They would say, I mean, I think what they actually say is recognize it, feel it. Because mm-hmm. one of the reasons we all, we hang out in fear or we don't fully is we don't we're not willing to feel the uncomfortable sadness of losing an employee. So we just blame them for for being a bad. Oh no, they weren't good anyway. Mm-hmm. No, we're just sad mm-hmm. they're leaving. Oh, gosh, mm-hmm. we're bummed. Mm-hmm. Or we're not mm-hmm. willing to feel the scaredness of not knowing how we're you know how we're gonna hit some goal or something. Like there's we actually deny our feelings and in doing that we don't fully feel them. So we kind of stay in this, this in a state that we can't get through all the way mm. to the parts of play genius and, and the empathic love part. Oh man. I feel like I'm going to have some homework to do some psychoanalysis on myself after this episode. This is a, this is a great framework. I think that are great lens to sort of think about all yeah. this. And through. when we first heard it, by the way, we, we, it was interesting. We were first in denial. Like, no, I don't use fear. What do you mean? Mm-hmm. I'm an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. I love it. I'm, I'm enjoying making money. And it took some real, like him, him really helping us see that we were using it all the time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in big and small ways to motivate ourselves. And then once he, once we saw that, then I, I had it took him probably took me eighteen months from there to to even consider letting go of fear, hmm. because I, you know, I was I was very skeptical. Okay. I said, well, hold on, if I if I don't have a big target I need to hit, if I don't, if I'm not like how how am I going to get out of bed in the morning? So I went from denying I used it to then actually going, no, actually, you're you're right. I use it. And I'm never letting it go because I need (laughs) this fear. I need it because why would I, if I, if I didn't have the ambition to go start a thing Mm -hmm. and, and at one point he said to me, he goes, Jesse, what are you afraid of is going to happen if you don't let fear mode, if you don't give yourself some huge market cap or revenue number to go hit and then just pump yourself constantly to go hit that. And, you know, because what do you think is going to happen? I go, I don't know. What if I like watch Netflix all day and I just don't do shit? Like what would like I was I was I was like I don't know I'm kind of lazy on the download like I what if that's what I, what happens, and he goes do it, he goes go I want you to take a week off work, I was like no man what's wrong with you he's like no trust me, I did it, you know after three days I was like this is boring, right yeah I want to go do some interesting stuff and he goes yeah, he yeah. and he goes he goes you know, like my sensei he's like hey young young grasshopper. <laughs> What you see is that like you're still a creative guy who wants to go build stuff. You don't have yeah. to use fear as the thing to get you to do that. There and then that once once that really became apparent uh, to me, okay. it unlocked yeah. me to say, oh, I don't have to give myself a big target to to get up in the morning. I can just mm. focus on the things I love doing, like my player genius, or I can focus on a part of the human experience that I want to enhance and make better. 
And and it's not, by the way, this is not a switch that just you wake up one morning. It's a it's a mm-hmm. daily, mm-hmm. hourly uh, thing where I'll still wake up and look yeah. at something and feel fear and then go, well, actually, no, I'd, I prefer to choose genius here. I prefer to choose, you know, empathic love. And, and I'll give you a great example of it. Um, the, you know, I have a lot of people who worked with me for a long time and, and be, knew me before this and knew me after this. And one of the paradigms of conscious leadership, by the way, which relates to this is context versus content. They argue, and I generally, I did not believe this for a long time. I do now that like content is wholly unimportant for motivation, which sounds very different than what most people say. For example, people go, no, no, I want to do healthcare. I'm not motivated by marketing Hmm. or I want to do software. That's, that's, I get excited, you know, and it's, they go, no, 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 that stuff matters. That's just content. That's just like what's going on in the world. The context Hmm. is from where are you doing it? So you can start a cancer curing startup, but if all you're worried about is how much money you're going to make, or if the company's going to be successful, that's going to feel very fear oriented, regardless of the fact that it's got a, it's got a positive mission, right? Mm. On the flip of that, you could run an insurance business. And if it's because you want to help everyone sleep better at night, you truly feel that way. That's where you come from. It'll be the most motivating, exciting place to work ever. Right. And, and so the the, the theory, but anyway, so that there's context versus content. And so it's funny because I love, I love that. I love that concept. I just want to, I just want to like pause on that for a second because I think that's so important. I think that's, really counterintuitive to the way most people look at the world, right? It is like, I am interested in XYZ industry and not X, not this other industry. Right. Um, but like, I and, think and part of it is because yeah, people conflate them. I think like you say, I want to do a healthcare startup because it helps people. What you're really saying is I want to, I want to live in a place where I want to help other people. Yeah. But you can help other people all in all kinds of interesting ways. And healthcare could be one of them, but the content yep. of healthcare yep. is not what's actually exciting you. It's the, it's the context from where that might allow you to do. Yes. Right. You know, what yes. And so, but, but so back to this, uh, this story, you know, we, I have a lot of people who work for me for a long time. And, and one of the, we, you started this question by asking about purpose. My, the purpose that I uncovered, which is already sort of within me is I really love helping people learn and grow to be the best versions of themselves. And I actually think mm-hmm. entrepreneurship is like running a marathon or any hard thing. It's one of the ultimate personal growth vehicles. So my purpose is to help others learn and grow through the vehicle of entrepreneurship, right? That's sort of, and I had people who worked with me before this coaching and after, and you know, we, we walk into a room and our numbers are not meeting the goal, right? And the pre, the pre Jesse would be scared. He'd be like, fuck, we're, we're missing our numbers right mm-hmm. now. What do we mm-hmm. do? And I still have this issue, but it's not like has not disappeared <laughs> fully. You're aware right? of it at least. Now. But now I take a breath. Yeah. Now I take a breath. Yeah. Well, so I take a breath and I'd say, I want, what's my purpose? My purpose is to help this person learn and grow. And so what I got feedback from a bunch of people who work with me for a long time. I go, you know, Jesse, it's weird. You don't say anything different than you used to, but I feel extremely different in the conversation. And I walk away feeling pumped up and energized, mm. not deflated and demoralized. Mm. But they, but they go, I was like, how's that work? He goes, I don't know. You don't say anything different. And that's a perfect example of content versus context, which is, mm-hmm. If your numbers are down, the process is the same. What what's the driver? Let's break it down into its component parts. Okay, can, what can we change? Can we do this? Can we do this? Can we do this? Right. But what they were saying to me was, of course, my analytical brain did the same work in both cases. But in one, I was mm-hmm. like, they could feel the fear. They could feel I was scared. They could mm-hmm. feel, hey, why didn't we think about this? Well, what did we mm-hmm. do around this? What what about this thing? They could just, you know, that that's how you show up in that moment versus going. Uh, what do you think are the big drivers of this? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How might you solve the problem? 
Uh, well, here's an idea for you. Like, you know, you, again, you're going to say the same stuff because there's yeah. a, the math problem. It's just is that, the same mind, that mindset shift ends up being massive. And that yeah. was really validating for me because I was like, wow. So it literally, like, you say the same words, Jesse. And they didn't know all the nuances of the coaching I was doing. Mm -hmm. They just mm -hmm. saw how I showed up in a meeting when our numbers were not being, or whatever, mm -hmm. numbers are not being met. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, that's sort of the purpose thing and, and, uh, a really, really powerful piece of all of this. That, that's really cool. So let me ask you this, um, just on the conscious leadership side. I mean, if someone is listening to this and that this is the first time they've heard about this, I mean, what would be like a first step to start to educate yourself a little bit more about this? Would it be going to check out the, yeah, the go to conscious.is uh, and watch okay. their videos. They have a really nice landing page that has sort of their, the top three or four core videos of like to conceptually grasp their view of this. Um, and, and then they have a book, which I think is a wonderful read. And then they have a bunch of resources and exercises you can do. And cool. cool. You know, as I've, as I've gotten my, into other, other paradigms, they're all kind of different flavors of, of coffee, you know, if you will, like, but it, it there does seem to be some consistency. I like theirs because it translates something that's pretty high level and they have lots of exercises and activities. Mm. Um, and so like, like to give you an example of one, uh, one of the, you know, and Dave would use these, our coach would use these all the time. I, one, I said, you know, Dave, I'm not happy with feedback in my organization. I want there to be more feedback. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and a business coach sort of knows what to do. Business coach says, well, start having more one-on-ones and every, every manager must do this. Da, 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 da. And that stuff I've, I've done a lot of that stuff. And, you know, sometimes it just doesn't work. And, and, and there people say, why does that stuff always get stuck? It doesn't work. And, mm -hmm. and Dave's, he used one of the, one of their exercises, which is called the recipe exercise. And it's a, re, it's a, it's an exercise in reflection and responsibility. So we pulled the whole executive team together as at Ampush. And he goes, what do you think you guys are in feedback in your culture? And I said a six out of 10, someone said a seven out of 10. He goes, okay, so you're, you're not a 10 out of 10. He goes, why? Like what, what, and I, I, each of you guys write down five ways you're making it not a 10 out of 10. <laughs> Everybody take some to personal responsibility. Take some resp Everybody yeah, take yeah, responsibility yeah. for this. And it became, we looked at the list and then we started collecting the list. Mm -hmm. And what would you like it to be 10 out of 10? And what are reasons that, you know, stopping you from doing it? And, and it was really just a, oh yeah, the individuals had not taken full responsibility to full stock. And it was more powerful in terms of improving feedback in the organization. And then a bunch of people made a commitments to what they were going to do differently mm -hmm. than any sort of initiative we had ever rolled out that was a business mm -hmm. initiative around feedback. I like that. I like that. That's cool. It, t it takes it from the high level theory to like, okay, how can you like actually practically implement this exactly. in your life or in your business? Um, okay, cool. Well, let's talk about some more of these tactics um, and, and get down to some specifics. So I want to talk about um, energy management and time management specifically. So I had Kat Cole on this podcast a couple of months ago and I asked her my closing question, what, what's one thing that she's figured out in life that maybe others haven't? And, and her, her answer was around the importance of energy management. Um, mm -hmm. And um, I, I imagine that maybe your answer to that is, is, is tied in with what we've already talked about. It's like, you know, working on things that are important to you, maybe that give you energy, but, but tell me like, how do you think about that? So if you're involved with so many different businesses, like I said, uh, anybody looking at it from an outside perspective might be like, how, how on earth is this guy doing it? How do you, how do you think about maintaining your own levels of energy? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. And look, I think the first thing I would say just to acknowledge it is like, 
I also have that question of how am I doing? Like, mm-hmm. uh, this is a grand experiment to some degree. I have to remind myself of that also mm-hmm. so I don't get mm-hmm. too caught up in the success mm-hmm. of it. None of us um, have all the answers, but I'm curious, like, what you're yeah, using. Yeah, and yeah. I don't, and I don't know. I, I, in a year, I might tell you, you know what? The, all these different businesses didn't work. We ended up consolidating against one. And, and so mm-hmm. I just want to give that mm-hmm. voice because, it, you know, people listening out there go, oh, this guy's running 10. You know, I don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's a thing I'm learning how to do myself. Mm-hmm. Um and so, you know, the thing that I'm trying to do, and I'm doing a decent job of it, I think, uh, it relates to energy, and it's it's essentially the fourth rung of that motivation ladder, which is play and genius. And so one of the many concepts, conscious leadership, I think it co-ops it from other authors and stuff, but it's called zone of genius. Mm-hmm. And, and they talk about, you know, zone of genius, there's the zone of incompetence. Like, you know, for me, it's any kind of handiwork around the house. Like, I'm just incompetent. I don't oh, like doing I, it. I'm, I'm, uh, that's my zone of incompetence, too. You know, zone of it competence. It must be something like, about having the May 23rd birthday, Jesse, which we both share. That, that leads us to have that incompetence. The Gemini, the Gemini alliance. Yeah. yeah. The the zone of competence, which is like, I don't know, driving a car, maybe. Yeah, maybe that's my zone of excellence. Maybe it's competence, somewhere like that. But it's a thing you do all the time and whatever. Yep. Zone of excellence is like... I'm a good public speaker, maybe like, I, you know, I think I'm excellent at. And then zone of genius is you're really good at it. It adds a lot of value to the world. And most importantly, it gives you energy. Mm. It's something mm-hmm. you feel energized when you do. Mm-hmm. Right. And so um, I actually feel energized when I public speak. So it's probably more in a, in a genius zone versus excellence for me is, uh, I don't know, looking at a spreadsheet and, and going through lots of numbers. I'm pretty good mm-hmm. at it, but like, I don't really get energy from <clears throat> Shoot, doing that's it. incompetence for me too. Um, and so, you know, one of the big mistakes we all make is, is we spend too much time in our zone of excellence and not enough yep. in our zone of genius, right? Mm-hmm. And so for me, I spent, I've spent a lot of time working, reflecting, talking, thinking about this, and I kind of coalesced around a handful of zones of genius. You know, one of them is like, like spotting, you kind of mentioned earlier, spotting an opportunity, kind of commercially pulling at that string to find where there's a, a there. And, and like that entrepreneurial process of building a business, I love it. I'm like on cloud nine when I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm excited mm-hmm. and, and I'm, I'm great at it. So that's one. Um, related to that, that's kind of a sub bullet is like, I'm really good at when there's like a thing to go get done and figure out triaging the most important thing to get done for it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, and by, by the way, one funny thing about zone of genius is there's a whole exercise they have on how to discover your zone of genius. They tend to be huge blind spots for us because, mm-hmm. because they're not things we know are different. Like, and that, that's that triaging one for me. I was like, yeah, doesn't everybody do that? Doesn't everybody look at what needs to get like a goal and then figure out the one or two? And you work with enough people to go, no, they don't. Not everybody's that good at prioritizing and really, you know, streamlining something. So, so it's interesting, right? That, that anyway, so that's one. The second Wait, one. That, is, is this part, is this like under the umbrella of conscious leadership, mm-hmm. this whole idea? Okay. Okay. Yeah. I think Sorry. it was borrowed from another book called the big leap. They, they, they do a great job of aggregating a bunch of okay. different smart frameworks and stuff mm-hmm. into one book. Yep. Um, I, I've heard Sahil Bloom talk a lot about this idea of zone of genius. Um, yeah. But uh, the idea that it's it may be a blind spot for you, I think that kind of makes sense. I, I haven't heard it kind of verbalized like that before, but some of these things like, you know, whether it's public speaking or writing, like I'm, I'm thinking about myself um, here, are some of these things that maybe come a little bit more natural to you that are like the bane of other people's existence. Yes. Um, maybe it's a blind spot to you because you've, you've just always seen it as like, this has come kind of naturally, I guess. Totally. Totally. Yeah. And that's exactly right. And, and I think the key difference there between excellence and Jesus is does it give you energy? Mm-hmm. 
right? Mm-hmm. Do you receive energy? Like, do you feel energized by doing it versus yep. depletes your energy? And so that's one. And number two is coaching and teaching people. And actually, like, I love explaining concepts. I love, even in meetings, people are like, I'm always teaching a little bit. There's something mm-hmm. that you're going to impart. You're going to get learnings and knowledge because I love doing that. Uh, and then the third one is, is like some dynamic around, I, I, I can't, it's like relationships and deals, like this idea that you sort of get to know people and then together you can come up with more than what you could come up with individually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's something about that collaboration that mm-hmm. I, and I'm like really good at staying in touch with people and it's again one of these things that i didn't notice someone says how do you stay in touch with all these mm-hmm. like, i don't know i just mm-hmm. like to text them sometimes or <laughs> send them a link or, you know and i enjoy it when they come back to me and say oh yeah i had a kid or whatever i just yep. like that yep. gives me energy and so so what i've tried to do at gateway x with all these things is um and then i guess the other thing i would say is there's some knowledge areas obviously marketing sales whatever but what i've tried to do is say i am going to engage in these businesses and try to try to live 75 to 80% in my zone of genius at all time. And so if something's not in my zone of genius, I, you won't see me doing it. So for example, like running weekly staff meetings, I don't, I don't run the weekly staff meetings. There's, there's like a GM or COO, you know, type person in charge of each business. Mm-hmm. They run the meet, they run that yep. meeting. Cause that's not a thing that I get energy from. I do get energy from joining it coaching some people, helping us prioritize to the right place if I see a misprioritization, but prepping mm-hmm. for that mm-hmm. meeting, running it, checking what each person's doing, super important, by the way. Mm-hmm. I'm anally like, hey, guys, well, who's working on what? Like, the, like let's have, but I'm not the guy who wants to run that stuff mm-hmm. and, and track mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. It's just, and actually getting comfortable with that and knowing that has been really an unlock for me. Um, you know, the, like the creativity of how we're going to name these things or message them or market them. That's the thing I engage with a lot in the businesses. Mm-hmm. You know, the operational parts of, for example, for growth assistant, placing the right offshore person with the right client. Uh, just, mm-hmm. I don't touch mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Adrian, you know, she runs point like. So it's really just being very intentional and thoughtful about where and how I engage um, now, now, do you have it mapped out? Do you have like I'm almost picturing like concentric circles or something like that? Like, do you have it mapped out? Like, these are the f- three or four things that I consider to be like zone of genius, or like, is there any where you have that documented and you look? I've never, at, dr- like, I've never drawn it. I've, I've, I've written that kind of the user guide for myself where I explain it and explain mm-hmm. how and best to leverage me. Um, mm, oh, okay, that's and interesting. I, I, yeah, so like for the leaders who are running each of these businesses. Mm-hmm. You know, I've given them the framework of accountability around numbers and goals, obviously, and some of that stuff. That's just an important part of it. I help them prioritize stuff. And then I inject, my goal is to inject as a force multiplier into each of them in the areas where I can actually move the needle that's really valuable to the business. And so, so what's it, this user guide? What's this? Is this like a one pager like that you sent to executives? More than that, it's like, like five pages. It, oh, it's okay, a, okay. There's a good article out there. There's a first round has an article called like, the you know the secret to man- management write your own user guide so it's uh-huh. almost like you're a product and you want people to know how to use you out of the box yeah i love that that's really you cool. know what 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 pisses you off what uh whatever mm-hmm. okay cool i'm gonna find that and link to it that's awesome um, cool, cool. So operate in your zone of genius, man. That's, uh, that's the way, that's the way to manage. The yeah. And it's, it's look, it's yeah. easier said than done. Let's, let's be, yeah. let's be real. Like I, I'm not sure if I were to actually measure it, I, you know, there's no way I'm at 75, 80%. I'm probably right yeah. now 50, yeah. 60%. Um, yeah. the good news is I can feel it and tell, like I can tell when I'm hyper reactive to things and I'm kind of working off my heels and I'm, I'm yeah. de- energy is being depleted from me, mm-hmm. um, versus, 
when I'm, I'm like so energized to the next conversation, so energized to the next interaction. Yeah. Uh, and even if I look at my calendar, I can tell in the morning and I can even know like, Oh, today ain't a zone of genius day. Like I'm, you know, it's never going to be perfect, right? It's that you're never going to get to the point where like every day I'm operating in my zone of genius all day. I think the, the bigger point is like having the awareness of the, of this framework, uh, and, and the lens through which to, to look at, um, what you're choosing to involve yourself in. Cause I think, I think maybe what's the most important thing. And I think you're, you've done a nice job of this in your own career is looking at things through this lens and then being like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to get the like really big decisions, right. In terms of what I'm going to choose to involve myself in and not choose to involve myself in, but I'm also going to like have enough grace with myself on a daily basis to realize that life is not so clean. Right. Yeah. Like my day to day is not going to be, I'm not going to. Yeah. The, be- the grace on a daily basis is a really important one that I feel like maybe you guys, my age and your age start to develop. And if you're a little bit younger, you're tougher on yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think what I found like for me for working out has been an interesting one where I realized for the first 35 years of my life, I would either be really fit and like really aggressively working out like doing mm-hmm. P90X or I'd mm-hmm. be like a mm-hmm. fat blob and I just like <laughs> oscillated between the two. Yeah, right. Yeah, Not yeah. in a way that most people would notice, but in a way that was very much. You noticed. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I realized it was cause the only way I could get myself to work out was guilting myself. Like it was being mean to myself and guilting myself. And mm. then I actually realized that a second I said, you know what? I don't know if I, if I should or shouldn't work out. Do I want to, do I want to play tennis? Do I want to, I, it's been the massive, most consistent unlock for me of, I work out five times a, a week, but I don't, I'm not on a strict schedule for it. I don't have to mm-hmm. like manage every second or minute. I, I have some thoughts on getting intentional around it, but if I miss a workout, it's not a big deal. And mm-hmm. when I was 32, mm-hmm. if I missed a worked out, mm-hmm. I would, it would literally, I would stop working out for a month. Mm-hmm. Cause I'd be like, Oh, you missed a workout. What's wrong with you? And then I'd like next day I was like, Oh, you missed another one. And the next thing I just like be in this like little mini di- downward spiral of guilting myself around working out. Wow. Um, okay. So let me ask you uh, on that. So if you think about some of the, some of your other routines, so this is kind of more, more tactical, I guess, but if you think about stuff like sleep or nutrition or fitness, is there anything there that you think you've kind of figured out or is there anything there that you maybe do differently than, than others to sort of support this idea of uh, energy? Yeah. You know, I, I, this is my, I'd say I'm 80% on this schedule with, you know, not a travel and stuff as some of the biggest ones, you know, I have committed to like a meditation habit in the morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, one thing I've committed to is I don't look at my, my phone's not next to my bedside. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it sits in my office actually where I'm sitting right now. And, and I wake up, I try my best to go an hour without looking at my phone. Mm, that's pretty impressive. See, I, uh, I, I have it outside of my, I have it outside of my room, but I pretty much am checking it as soon as I wake up. See yeah. Like what yeah. So I, I, I wake up, I, I try to meditate, uh, or meditate. Now, do you I'd say. use an app or do you just sit quietly or either, or I'll either sometimes do that. Sometimes I use waking up, um, okay. yeah. depending Sam on Harris's my headspace. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then I I do like this like gratitude journal. I think I've tried a few different ones. It's called three minute mornings. It's like uh, mm-hmm. letting go of one thing, gra- grateful for three things, uh, and one one thing you're going to focus on or something like that. Yeah. And, and I find that to be really powerful. And and you know gra- people people are interestingly like gratitude journals. A lot of people have tried and don't like them. And I find that if I do it, it's just such a change. It just it and it's especially the the advice I give everyone because I think people burn out of them is you can't be vague about it. Like I literally am like last yesterday at 1 PM when my daughter laughed, 
this goofy mm. laugh. I'm grateful mm-hmm. for that. Yes. And yeah, you I can't think, be like, I'm grateful for my family for my kids. or something yeah, like that. It, exactly. it, you got to make it a little more specific. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I do that and then I try to just do some, it does not hardcore, but like some exercise or stretch of for a minute, mm-hmm. like literally 10 squats or five push ups or stretch, like just do downward dog just to like get mm-hmm. my body. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I get ready. Uh, and I'll, you know, we try to make a big habit in, in the house of saying goodbye and hello to each other. Just like, mm. so I make sure I say goodbye to my kids. If I'm mm. the days I'm not taking them to, to school or whatever, then the days now, I am. Now, what, 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 what's the driver of that? What's the thought process behind making a big deal out of that? Um, I don't know. It's a little bit just like gratitude. It's like a appreciation for each other. It's like, you know, mm-hmm. the, I don't know. The, I think of the classic, maybe it's a little bit fear driven, but it's like the classic thing of like, somebody leaves the house and they get into a car accident and they die. Mm-hmm. And you're like, I never said mm-hmm. bye to them. I know. I, for, I always think about that for some reason. I don't know why. I Maybe do it's too. Just yeah. Like a natural I, parent, you know, worry. Or well, whatever. it's like, and it's like, yeah, what's the last, if, if every interaction was your last, cause event, you know, it's like, let's live like that. And, and yeah. I, I don't know. So we just, we really try to, to do our best to do that. Um, and then I, you know, schedule wise, cause I know you want to get tactical, like, I Monday, Wednesday, Fridays, I typically don't take my kids to school. And my wife does. They're probably gonna start riding the bus pretty soon because they're getting older. But uh-huh. uh, and then Tuesday, Thursdays, I drop them. Monday, Wednesday, Fridays, I get home by six thirty for dinner. Um, Tuesday, Thursdays, I don't get home. Like mm-hmm. I'm working super late, or I'm mm-hmm. I, like work late, then I go play tennis or something. So I don't see mm-hmm. the kids on those two nights. And then the nights I'm home by dinner, I put them to sleep. Mm. Um, and so then, yeah, I think. I think that's kind of my routine, you know, and then, uh, it's, it's, a, the, it's a weekly schedule that's relatively scheduled. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been pretty good about honoring it. Um, you know, I think one of the things I'm struggling with in this, in this mode is getting like really time to do thinking and working. Mm. And I'm trying to work on one of the things I'm trying to do to improve that is like, not just leave blocks of my calendar open, but actually like on Sundays, sit down and schedule the big things I actually want to like write or work mm-hmm. on, mm-hmm. um, as time blocks in my calendar. Yeah. yeah. Um, specifically like, okay, you're going to, this time at 1 PM, mm-hmm. you're going mm-hmm. to write some Twitter thread or yes. you're going to, and right. I haven't done that to date. It's kind of happened. I've had to do that. I, I, I have had to do that. I feel like my calendar is so busy between job, uh, you know, parenting duties, coaching, all these different responsibilities that like, if I am legitimately going to, you know, make an effort at Twitter, like uh, I'm doing that on a weekly basis, I'm sitting down and like it, there's an hour in my calendar where I have to, it says like, write a Twitter thread, right. You know, yeah. like, because otherwise it's just not happening, you know, cause I, I know in my schedule, like if there's an open spot, somebody's going to fill it with something. Right. So I kind of, yeah. and one of the hard that. things for me about all these different businesses is like, even when I do, I've tried versions of that or like, and I realize I need to be shorter blocks, not longer blocks with longer blocks. I, I get like task off task basically. Mm-hmm. But one of the mm-hmm. weird things about having all these businesses, like in, in a moment where I have free time, even if I've mm-hmm. scheduled it, but I don't have a meeting with somebody, I, there's like a million stimuli at any given moment. There's 20 mm. Slack channels lighting up. Oh, there's God. a report. For I don't have thing. Slack and I'm like thankful for that. <laughs> oh, really? really? Yeah, I don't know. Wow. Yes. I've avoided it so far through uh, 44 years of life. I like Slack. Really? Yeah. I just, Slack, about, I mean, I just always email. heard it's like so many notifications and things like that. And I'm like, oh gosh, I don't need more notifications. I, so I turn life. off all my notifications. Okay. The only thing that ever makes a sound for me is my phone ringing. 
Mm-hmm. Otherwise, texts, I've turned them all off. I turn yep. them off from the from the screen when you look at the phone. Mm-hmm. I turn them off from all my computers. Uh, so it's always me choosing to engage and then going through these different things. But yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Cool, cool. Um, how about, um, and I want to be conscious of, of time here, so I, I ironically want to ask you a quick time management question. Is there anything, I mean, you, you, so you mentioned that this growth assistant business that you've launched um, is essentially a delegation um, business, but is there anything that you've figured out from that standpoint just in terms of time management um, that you think uh, is, is particularly kind of worth, worth sharing, whether it's how you manage your email or how you delegate tasks or anything like that? Yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a inbox zero person. Mm. Uh, so I get my inbox to zero every day. Uh, and, and I think. Is there a system uh, to do such? Yeah. It's like, it's like whatever. I mean, it's pretty common now. I think like I've written a thread about it on Twitter, a superhuman niche kind of like use the keyboard shortcuts. You know, it's kind of the four D's you delete, delegate, uh, Mm -hmm. defer Mm -hmm. or do, Mm -hmm. um, so I probably spend two hours a day on email, but it's, you know, an email and Slack and it, but it's very much the control panel for all these businesses. It's how I communicate mm-hmm. things to people. And mm. so that's now, are you looking of, at your email most of the day or are you like batching when you look at no, it? batching? Yeah. Probably like my ideal would be three 30 minute sessions. It's, it ends up looking more like two one hour sessions mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. when I actually, when all said and done, uh, so, but it's pretty batched. Um, okay. Yeah. Mostly because the volume of email I get, it's like I can't even look at it intermittently. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. too many emails. I feel like many. for the first fifteen years of my career, I was just like letting my inbox control my day, and I was just like responding to one thing after another. And it wasn't until probably the last four or five years where I've been like, that just doesn't make sense. This this cannot be my to do list. You know, it's got to yeah. be segmented a little bit. I um, kind of actually... use it as my to do list, but I'll also then like I've done other things like with my assistant. When when I was running Ampush, it was a little bit of a different animal. But like when people would email me requests or reviews, I would basically say, "Hey, you know, tell me what by when you need an answer and level of importance zero to ten. Mm-hmm. And she would mm-hmm. aggregate those and block time on my calendar. And okay, for an hour, I would go. She's like, all these things people want you to look at and say yes or no to, sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, I like that. I, but I think the thing that, I, that my biggest time management hack for anybody and for myself is is like I am really. Uh, anal about prioritizing. Mm. So I'm very big on the like, if you could only get one thing done today, if you could only get one thing done this week. And so the way I manage my time really is like on a Sunday, I will think about the one thing literally for each of the businesses that I want to get done that week that I think Mm -hmm. is super important. Mm -hmm. And -hmm. I'll just really focus in on that and make sure that my time is being allocated to that thing. Yeah. That tends to to move the needle on on stuff. I love that. That's great advice. Um, one thing that you have probably prioritized, I think a little more over the last year or two is Twitter. So tell me a little bit about that. Um, uh, what's the thought process there? Why have you decided to invest time in, in Twitter and, and extremely successfully, by the way, with a hundred and almost 140,000 followers, I think as of this morning when I checked. Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, uh, it had been on my list for a long time. Um, as I was transitioning out of Ampush and any kind of new stuff, there was this window of like, oh, a thing I can really start to become. And, and you know, I, I think it, the spiritual side of it was was really my purpose, which we talked about earlier, which is if I want to help other people learn and grow to be the best version of themselves through entrepreneurship, like what better place to do that than a public place where I can share the things I've learned and the knowledge mm-hmm. I have. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the spiritual purpose behind it. I think the more commercial or business-oriented purposes behind it is like, you think about the most important thing every entrepreneur needs is like recruiting, 
commercial opportunities, you know, and building out like relationships network and then deal flow of, mm-hmm. of any kind. Like it sort of has blown my expectation, like like 10 X of what I expected when mm-hmm. it comes to that mm-hmm. um, in terms of, you know, looking, whether it's a contractor or a full-time person, like it helps to recruit. I've gotten, there was a guy, you know, the, uh, this guy knack who runs, runs Kahani, the, the software business, he had moved here. His wife's from St. Louis. He'd moved from Boston was a really awesome SaaS startup guy. And he, you know, he was in this new city. He didn't know anybody. And, and he's, he found me on Twitter and he goes, Hey, and next awesome. thing you know, like this guy's running a, a, a huge business That's for amazing. me. Right. Yeah. And so yeah. it's just, it's led to really positive things like that. I think, you know, half of growth assistance sales have come via Twitter, wow. um, which is millions of dollars in revenue. Wow. Right. So, That's so That's, incredible. That's another example. Yeah. So yeah, it's just been this really, and you know, and then I think on the more like, you know, one of my zones of genius is building relationships, getting to know people. It's just been a really mm-hmm, fun, you mm-hmm. know, you and I and mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. tens and scores of other people I've gotten to know yeah. through the platform. Um, so it's, it's also just been a ton of fun and a blast. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, I, I think it's a definitely a serendipity machine. And I think it's one of these tools that we have where, you know, you can connect with, you know, like-minded people or people who are, let's say, further along in the journey than you are or some people who you would want to meet, but maybe you would have otherwise no way to connect with them or no reason to connect with them. Yeah. That's and I, I tell thought. people, a lot of like friends of mine or people I know are like, oh my God, how'd you do that, Jesse? What's, and then they'll start writing threads and it doesn't yep. work. And, mm. you know, I, I've, I've told this to people like, I think you really have to first become a, a lover of the like reading and the engaging of Twitter before mm-hmm. you start producing content. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because even I actually, at some point, I think a couple of years ago or before I really started, I was like randomly posting content, no engagement. Yeah. And then I, I just, I started learning from it and reading it. And it's almost mm-hmm. like I became a real user of it, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And, and mostly from like, I was getting a ton of value out of it. So I tell people, yeah. I go first, yeah. make sure you're going to get a lot of value yep. as a, yep. as a reader and a whatever, then start to see if you can join the party and add value to it. That makes and sense. I've almost seen invariably that people who've tried the other way, they just try to start blasting content. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't really pick up in a meaningful way. Yeah. I think part of it too is like finding your tribe, so to speak, or front. Like for me, it's been like, like, I know, and I'm no, nowhere even remotely close to where you are on Twitter in terms of number of followers. But for me, like the value uh, that I've gotten out of it has been like finding like a core group. So let's say there's probably like 20 people that I engage with, like, very regularly. Um, and I'm trading DMS with them and like, you know, have ideas for them on stuff they might want to write or, you know, podcast, uh, topics or just anything really just, uh, have, have essentially, you know, made those, you know, 20 or so really good relationships. And it seems like that's, there's kind of like a virtuous cycle that kind of gets going there. So, um, well, that's cool, man, that you've, you've done an awesome job. It's been fun to follow you and, and, um, your journey there to, to kind of see how that's, that's developed. Um, and so I'll look forward to, to, uh, to watching that, that growth to, uh, to a million followers probably before we know it. Um, okay. We're going to wrap up here. Uh, one or two kind of, well, let's do this as a rapid fire question. Uh, and then what, and then I'll hit you with the last question. So books or podcasts that have impacted your life the most, anything kind of tip of the tongue on that, on that front? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership we talked about earlier is probably yep. a big one. Uh, I read a good book recently called Decisive, which I really liked. Okay. About becoming more decisive. Mm. Um, I, 
I love entrepreneur bios for a variety of reasons. Probably like Made in America is one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Podcasts. I mean, I love Patrick's podcast. Obviously, invest like the best. I just think the depth and the interviews he does there. He's are, amazing. Yeah, yeah, are really He's really one strong. Of my favorite. I like Founders Journal. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alex Lieberman does a wonderful job with Founders Journal. I think. Um, and you've done several. So you've done some of the, uh, what is it, business breakdowns that you've done? Yeah. I heard the one you did with your brother on Peloton. That was awesome. Yep, yep, yep. Um, yeah, that uh, one's been a ton of fun for me. I've learned a lot doing it, but yeah, it's been a ton of fun. Yeah, yeah. Cool, cool. Awesome. All right, last question. It's not a hard one at all. It's super easy. This will roll off the tongue for you, no problem. Um, what is one thing you've figured out in life? that maybe others haven't. And I'm being somewhat ironic there. That's kind of a deep question, but uh, interested in how you would tackle that one. Uh, I think the biggest one is nothing, you know, nothing can really break you. You know, I'm the kind of guy who has no issue missing a flight. If I miss a Mm. flight, so what? Mm. Um, you know, this willingness to really, I don't know, make a mistake or really like not like let, let, let things not go to plan and then rebuild or react. And I think like, just, it's like, you know, or like the first time you get punched in the face actually physically and you realize like, Mm -hmm. yeah, that hurt a lot, but like, I'm, I'm still here. Mm -hmm. I'm Mm -hmm. fine. You know, Mm -hmm. like, yeah, I wouldn't want to have that. Yeah. So I think I'm, I'm one of those people who've really gotten comfortable and I've figured out that like, you can really take a lot of, you can miss flights, you can get punched in the face and you can still stand. And, and I'm not afraid, you know, like those things don't, I don't worry so much about those types of things. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Um, it seems to me that that's connected to this idea of, you know, moving away from living out of fear. Um, because maybe that is more of a fear mindset to, you know, be worrying about, okay, this, this thing happens or if that thing happens, you know, uh, things go south for me, but as you learned with your own watching Netflix for a few days on the couch experience, um, you know, it's not, uh, some of these things that maybe you fear happening, um, are actually not that bad, um, when they actually do happen. Yes, sir. Cool, man. Well, listen, this has been awesome. Um, if for folks who want to follow you, find you, keep up with you, where's the best place to look? Probably Twitter, you know, JS Pooji, P U J J I. Probably the best, the best place. Awesome, awesome. Well, we'll link to that, um, and uh, we will link to a bunch of other things that have been mentioned in this conversation. But Jesse, um, really, really grateful uh, for you taking the time to do this. Um, like I said, I've just really enjoyed following you over the last couple of years, and it is like a real honor to to speak with you. So thank you for the time. Likewise, thanks for having me on, Greg. Hey guys, it's Greg again. Jesse did not disappoint. Am I right? I hope you agree. Um, listen, he's such a great guy. This was one of those conversations uh, when as soon as it ended, I felt like I had homework to do. And the first order of business is reading the 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership, which I've already started. Um, I have a feeling I'm going to be spending the next several months thinking through and hopefully practicing many of the concepts that Jesse talked about here. The content versus context idea really resonated with me, as well as some of Jesse's thoughts around understanding what's actually motivating us and possibly being able to influence that. Anyhow, go follow Jesse on Twitter, J.S. Pooji. 
you will not regret it, I promise. And remember to subscribe to the Intentional Wisdom Newsletter at gregcampion.substack.com. I'm going to write up some more thoughts on this episode there, so please go check that out. All right, guys, that'll do it for today. Um, Please do share this episode with your friends or share it on social media to help us spread the word. It's very much appreciated. But uh, listen, I really, really appreciate you listening as always.